This is episode 167 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Our Parents' Jobs. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. When Oprah won a Golden Globe in 2018, she said during her acceptance speech, In 1964, I was a little girl sitting on the linoleum floor of my mother's house in Milwaukee, watching Anne Bancroft present the Oscar for Best Actor at the 36th Academy Awards. She opened the envelope and said five words that literally made history. The winner is Sidney Poitier. Up to the stage came the most elegant man I had ever seen. I remember his tie was white, and of course his skin was black, and I had never seen a black man being celebrated like that. I tried many, many times to explain what a moment like that means to a little girl, a kid watching from the cheap seats as my mom came through the door, bone-tired from cleaning other people's houses. But all I can do is quote and say that explanation in Sydney's performance in Lilies of the Field. Amen, amen, amen. And then she goes on to talk about how that moment when she receives an award might be inspirational to little girls also watching. To me, the idea in her commentary here about how she was sitting on the floor watching this historic moment when her mother came through the door bone-tired from cleaning other people's houses. Oprah Winfrey's mother was an unwed teenage mother to Oprah, and it's a reminder that at least at one point, the United States really was the land of opportunity, that somebody born to an unwed teenage mother could become someone like Oprah Winfrey, whose wealth can be measured in the billions, but whose influence cannot, and how inspiring that is still to think that you could come from a situation like that and end up being so successful. I was thinking about the influence that our parents' jobs have on us, and I was struck by this recent article that showed up in the LA Times. It was written by Esmeralda Bermudez, and her mother was an immigrant from El Salvador who also worked cleaning houses. Esmeralda was a reporter for the LA Times and had one of her articles printed on the front page. And so her mother took a copy of that newspaper to her current employer and showed it to her and pointed at the byline and said, this is my daughter. According to the story, that was the first time the senora actually paused and and acknowledged this woman who'd worked for her for a long time and stopped to ask questions about the family. And the mother said that for the first time, she felt actually seen. 
Esmeralda said, because of what she helped me accomplish with rags and sponges, Windex and ivory soap, they understood her purpose and her worth. That is a very interesting comment. And I do imagine what it must have been like for this house madam to have this newspaper put in front of her and to suddenly see her housekeeper in a completely different light. And also important for us to think about, like, what does that mean, what this mother has contributed to our economy, not just as a housekeeper, but as a mother, as Anne Crittenden reminded us when she was on this podcast last year, when we were talking about motherhood, she said, you know, what is a greater contribution that you can make than to create another worker and contribute to the economy in that way? So Esmeralda took to Twitter to ask her network, what jobs did your parents work to get you where you are today? And she got thousands of responses, and some of them are quite, you know, quite moving, really. Uh, One wrote and said, Mom was a factory worker. She's currently working in a lamp factory. Pappy was a janitor slash cleaner, currently at a psych hospital. And me, I'm an attorney. Another one said, Mom sold roses at nightclubs, sold corn on the cob, was a housekeeper, a nanny, a dog walker. And my job, actor. Another one, mom was a clerical worker. Dad was a construction worker. Me, attorney general for the state of California. Yes, so that one did come in from the current uh, California attorney general, Xavier Becerra. Uh, This other person, Valdemar, said, my dad was a miner for almost 40 years. He always wanted to know what it was like to work in an air-conditioned building. So after he retired, he took a job at Target story here from Frances Wang, who's a TV news anchor in Miami, and she proudly shared the many jobs her mom, Corinna, worked after she left China for the U.S. She worked as a corner store clerk, a waitress, a tour guide. She owned a computer software company, co-founded a Chinese lantern festival, owned mall kiosks, phone accessories wholesale, property owner slash manager. And Wang text messaged her mother after she posted about her online. And her mother told her that in some cases, she worked up to three of those jobs at the same time. So her mom texted her, this is why I can't understand. You cannot even cook for yourself now. You only has one job. Ha 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 ha. And there's this beautiful photograph of the two of them at Wang's graduation, which says, you know, photograph is worth a thousand words. So it it says more than a thousand words, and I'll post a link to it. Some statistics are kind of interesting when you think about this issue about immigrants coming to the United States, working quite low-level jobs, working very hard, and part of their motivation, maybe a large part of their motivation, is for their children. So here's some stats for you from the Pew Report of 2017. Of the total workforce, 83% are native-born, 17% are immigrant, of which 12% are authorized to work here and 5% are undocumented immigrants. I don't know about you, but I was surprised how low that number was for undocumented immigrants. (laughs) It seems like we talk about them so much. 
The immigrant workforce has grown from 9% in 1995 to 12% in 2014. And here's some interesting statistics about where they work. I don't know about you, but I might have suspected that some of these percentages would be higher. So see what you think. So in the occupation of personal appearance is one of the categories that they use. So manicurists, pedicurists, 63% of those are immigrants. And also kind of interesting to know, notice what the median wage is for some of these. For that occupation, the median wage is $9.43. In agriculture, 60% of graders, like the sorters for fruits and vegetables, uh, 60% of those workers are immigrant. I don't know about you, but I might have thought that that could be higher. And the median wage there is $9.57. In general, 52% of agricultural workers, uh, where our food comes from, are immigrant. And 30% of those are undocumented. So that's really where you can see the undocumented workers come come in to play, you know, here in California for sure. And we'll talk about that, what that means in a few more minutes. 59% of plasterers and stucco uh, workers are immigrants. And so that's a much higher percentage than you would see in something like plumbing or electrical work where certification is generally required. But still, you know, it's, it's still more than half of the workers in that occupation. Sewing machine operators, 55% are immigrants. And I don't know if you remember, we did a podcast on the sweatshops in Los Angeles. So as we talked about in that podcast, a lot of those workers are immigrant. Maid and house cleaners, 50% are immigrants. I might have thought that would be more, but that could be because I'm here in California, and so it could be higher here. Tailors, dressmakers, and sewers, again, about 50%. And here we drop down into below 50%, so no longer are the majority filled by immigrant workers. Drywall and ceiling tile installers, 49%. Taxi drivers and chauffeurs, 47%. And again, that might vary depending on where you are. Uh, But I thought it was kind of interesting. There's no industry where immigrants dominate. In terms of who's employed by private households, 45% are immigrant and 22% are undocumented. So when you think about where undocumented workers are being employed, you can think about the fields and you can think about your own private suburban houses who are employing undocumented workers as uh, housekeepers and nannies. There's always a debate about immigrant workers and whether or not they're actually taking jobs away from native-born Americans. On one hand, you know, you can get swayed by statistics. On the other hand, I do notice things like the American Farm Bureau got together to ask Congress to issue more agricultural worker visas because the farmers were saying that they simply couldn't employ enough people to fill all the work that they had. Now, when the average pay is $10 an hour, when the national average wage is $12 an hour, 
you might come to the conclusion that Americans don't want to do that work for that pay. And indeed, the work is very hard, right? Outside, backbreaking, literally backbreaking work in the heat and sun and so forth. There are organizations that will refute that. So the Center for Immigration Studies, which claims that it's a low immigration organization, you might argue that it's an anti-immigration organization. Now, they argue that since only six of the 474 occupations that are tracked are majority immigrant, that means that there are, quote, no jobs Americans won't do. So their argument is that if there were really jobs that Americans wouldn't do, then you would see a lot more of these civilian occupations that were filled by immigrants. It's a complicated discussion, right? And I find that as I look into this a little bit more deeply, I become quite suspicious of uh, people's claims when people say things like, oh, you no matter how much you pay, you can't possibly get an American-born worker to take this job. Mm, and that just defies common sense. And so when people say that they can't pay to get somebody to work, I, I just find that hard to believe. Uh, so I think we're really trying to keep wages low in a lot of these jobs. And so there's a there's a balance there, right, that the market is working out between the difficulty of the job and how much you're willing to pay for it. It's just my opinion, but I think it's interesting when you get into these conversations to see who's willing to work for how much and whether or not the market would actually support a higher wage or are you barely making it because you just barely have enough people working at, this, at these low wages to cover the labor that you need? Seems to me it's going to balance out. Now, just to make things more complicated, when you look at the share of immigrants in high-skilled jobs, that's actually gone up pretty significantly. So it was 10% in these high-skilled jobs in 1995 were filled by immigrants. Now, in 2018, it's up to 17%. As you will not be surprised to hear, the country of origin makes a big difference. So Hispanics, which is the largest group of immigrant workers that we have in the U.S., are mostly in lower-skill occupations, whereas Asians, which is the largest block of new arrivals, work in higher skilled jobs that prioritize analytical skills such as science and math, so lots of engineers and so forth. Let's just take a quick look here at how your parents' occupation can affect your own job choice. This was the subject of a different article in the New York Times, but I thought was also kind of amusing. And there is a split along gender lines here. So a man is 2.7 times as likely to have the same job as his father, but only twice as likely to have the same job as his mother, whereas a woman uh, doesn't follow quite as closely in the footsteps of either of her parents. She's 1.7 times as likely to have the same job as her dad, and 1.8 times as likely, so slightly more, to have the same job as her mother. And this information that comes from the general social survey data 
shows that some of the jobs most likely to be passed down to the children include steelworker, legislator, baker, lawyer, and doctor, because I'm not too surprised about the lawyer and doctor. Apparently, kids less likely to follow in their parents' careers as if the parents are if the parents were middle managers or clerical or service workers. So there's something about the jobs themselves that seem to attract the children, possibly because they inherit a business or they get an internship or they have some kind of in, you know, having a parent put in a good word for them with, as part of their network. And an economist at Harvard, you wouldn't think we'd, it'd take an economist at Harvard to tell us this, but she says... If people lack financial capital, they likely lack these other types of capital as well. And then she says in the understatement of the year, for all of these reasons, the world is not a very fair place for some kids. Occupations that are particularly inbred, you might say, are Hollywood acting and politics. Some of the kids say that they were interested in pursuing their parents' job because of what they call the breakfast table effect, you know, just talking about the jobs at home, but also that they might have a better understanding of what those jobs entail. And so something like textile spinning and shoemaking are also high on the list, perhaps because the rest of us just don't know what it would be like to have an occupation like that or even how you would get started to have an occupation like that. So just to give you a sense here, Uh, When you look at the statistics for how frequently daughters follow in their father's footsteps, uh, becoming a fisher, a fisher person, I guess, they're almost 400 times more likely to become one of those if their father is one. And then military officer, I thought was interesting, almost 300 times as likely to become a military officer if their mother was one. And then for boys, over 400 times as likely to become a textile machine operator if their dad was one, and almost 200 times as likely to become a paralegal or legal assistant if their mother was one. So kind of interesting, a few things I wouldn't have guessed there. And then, of course, in some cases, the children say that it wasn't necessarily that their parents held those jobs, but that they had an interest in them. So a daughter, for example, whose mother was very interested in mathematics and majored in math, although she didn't end up working as a mathematician, she encouraged that in her daughter. And so her daughter ended up being a math major and working as a mathematician. And then other kids talk about their parents either working as scientists or having an interest in science and that influencing their occupational choice as well. Now back to first-generation immigrants. Of course, it's possible that some of these people who have come to the United States are actually trained for a much higher level job than the one that they end up working in because of language problems or simply that they can't get certified or can't find work here in the United States. So I have a number of clients who fall into this category, a one, several actually, who were doctors and had experience working as doctors, were educated in reputable schools, but were unable to find work here in the United States as a doctor. And so one, it was working as a coding technician for a biotech company. 
another one who is actually trained and had experience as a surgeon was working as a lab technician in the hospital, another one working as a a pharmacy assistant. So doctors are a particular kind of problem because of the influence of physician associations restricting doctors in the United States, a cynic might say, in order to keep them scarce and to keep salaries high. And so we can thank the American Medical Association for that waste of talent, uh, if you think that's what's driving that. It would be interesting to do a separate podcast about why we have such a scarcity of doctors in the United States, what the drivers are behind that, and if there's anything that we can do about it. So I bring those up because those could be examples of people who might appear to have a relatively kind of middle-level occupation, but given their education and ambition, they might be installing that in in their kids. And so their kids end up what might appear to be at a much higher level job, but it's really because the parents were essentially underemployed being first-generation immigrants. When I got my certification to teach English as a second language, I was working in a school where we had a large number of Iraqi immigrants Most of them were Christian Iraqis who had come to the United States to escape persecution, religious persecution. And I remember being really struck by one of them who brought in a job application for me to help him fill it out. And he was looking to get a job in a pizzeria. And it really struck me at the time as I was talking to him and thinking about him being in an interview for that position and how they would view him. And I can just hear their words in my head, you know, what can we do with him? He doesn't even speak English. And it it was tough for me to think how hard it was going to be for this individual to get a job, even a a job in a pizzeria because of his language, and also just how he would be viewed by potential employers. You know, it's a good reminder to us, a person like that is very possibly college-educated, maybe pretty significantly talented and skilled, might even be an engineer, and yet in this situation in this country, It's very tough for them to be employed at their full potential. I think it's also worth mentioning here, too, about the shame that can go with low-level jobs, even for the kids, right? And so in Esmeralda's article in the LA Times, uh, she mentions that many of the people who got in touch with her were immigrants from Latin America because that's her network. She said their stories echoed time and time again what I imagine other kids born to other U.S. immigrants felt generations ago. And she quotes a graphic designer from Richmond, Virginia, Kelly Reyes, who uh, saw the post and wrote, Where I live, I don't know many people who share my parents' struggles. I forgot it formed a sense of shame in me. This made me realize I don't feel shame anymore. There are so many others who have gone through what my parents went through. It's so funny in this country that we have this immigrant experience passed on from generation to generation. And sometimes, you know, it's a reminder because we forget, 
right? I remember when one of my sons first became aware of some of the socioeconomic differences in his school, and he was really surprised in middle school where apparently they had gone around and said what their parents did. And he was really surprised to hear of his schoolmates, how many of their parents, he said to me, you know, have pretty low-level jobs. You know, you just expect, right, that everybody's parents are going to have the same kind of job that you have. And at that time, I was working as a CFO, so he didn't have to feel any shame about me. Now, of course, he would because he'd just have to tell them that his mother is a lowly podcaster. And it's the same for me. Both of my dads were physics professors, uh, but my mother was a homemaker. You know, that was in the era when many college-educated women and bright women like my mother were unpaid homemakers. And I did a podcast with her. If you're interested in her story, I'll put a link to that too. Uh, but, you know, there also there were other kinds of underemployment, right, in, in our country. But, you know, if you go back another generation, you get a different story. And so one of my grandfathers was a traveling salesman, but another one really struggled after he lost his job in the automotive industry during the Depression. And he uh, moved the family to Texas, where he picked cotton. Uh, he moved to Oregon, where he could work in the canning factories. You know, it was tough, tough to get jobs. And he worked very hard jobs. Uh, he ended up getting a job with the post office, which was really a, you know, a happy ending to that story. And all of his children went to college, and all of them a- obtained advanced degrees. Some more statistics for you here about uh, generations. So we've got 235 million adults in the United States. Uh, first generation is about 37 million. Those are the ones born outside the U.S. Uh, the second generation is 20 million who have at least one immigrant parent. And then third generation or higher, 178 million are children who have U.S.-born parents. And again, how quickly we forget, right? Uh, my grandmother, for example, was not U.S.-born. She immigrated here when she was nine. And it's just easy for us to forget how, you know, you don't have to scratch the surface very far before you go back to uh, an immigrant in your ancestry. So of those 20 million second-generation adults, uh, there's another 16 million who were born here to immigrants who are under the age of 18. So they are a force to be reckoned with. In research that's been done by uh, the Pew Research Center, Second-generation Americans generally are better off. They have higher income. More of them are college-educated and homeowners, and fewer live in poverty. After they've gotten settled in, their characteristics resemble those of the rest of the U.S. population. So you might say they catch up, so to speak, very quickly. Hispanics and Asians make up seven-tenths of the immigrants, and about half of today's adult second generation. They are more likely to speak English. They are more assimilated and tend to describe themselves as typical Americans. They are very likely to place importance on hard work and career success, and more likely to say that their standard of living is higher than that of their parents. So very interesting to see what the second 
first-generation immigrants think of their experience in the United States compared to the millennial experience, right, where so many of them find that they are underemployed compared to their parents, not homeowners, can't afford to have children, and are less likely to own homes than their parents were. So, you know, very interesting contrast in experience. And here's some more from Pew Research Center. They say, given current immigration trends and birth rates, virtually all, 93% of the growth of the nation's working age population between now and 2050 will be accounted for by immigrants and their U.S.-born children. So that is who our future workforce is, according to trends from today. I was talking to another client who's actually fairly recently arrived here from China, and she has a job selling AstroTurf over the phone. And so I'm working with her on her English so she can uh, have more sales. But she was commenting to me that her daughter will find better employment than she has, and that that's her dream and her expectation, as that is also for her daughter. And she said to me, for us, the American dream is still alive. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.